Hi, I'm Gabby Logan, and this is the II Family Money Show. In each episode, I speak to a familiar face about the role money has played in their family life and professional success. In this episode, I'm joined by entrepreneur and former dragon on the BBC's Dragon's Den, Sarah Willingham. Growing up in Stoke, Sarah started doing Saturday jobs from the age of 11, and from there went on to work for Pizza Express and Planet Hollywood. Eventually, she turned the Indian restaurant chain Bombay Bicycle Club into a multi-million pound business. She also, along with her husband, built and then floated the vitamin and food supplement company NutraHealth on the London Stock Exchange. After starting a family, she then totally changed the way she worked, pulling back from managing her businesses day to day so she could achieve a better work-life balance and spend more time with her four children. In our interview, Sarah tells me how she originally planned to work in finance before ending up in the food trade, why her time sharing an office with the Pizza Express chief executive gave her the confidence to choose her own path within the industry, and why she and her husband let their children control the daily budget on their family gap year. There's so much to get into with you, Sarah. I can introduce you as a serially successful entrepreneur and former dragon. I don't know what you introduce yourself as. Do you have a title when people say, what do you do? It, do you know what? It often really depends what I'm doing. I think you're right. I never really know. I mean, for years, I didn't dare call myself an entrepreneur because I don't really start stuff from scratch. So I'm like, oh, I'm not a real entrepreneur. But yes, I suppose I'm an entrepreneur. Let's go back to the beginning of your working life then. And uh, you you started in the, the restaurant and uh, hospitality industry, didn't you? That was where things started to get really serious for you in terms of success in, in business. How did you know that business was where you wanted to be? It's a good question. I think um, I was always really fascinated with business. I don't think I even knew that that was what I was really interested in. It's only in hindsight that I think I was actually really interested in it, even at school. Um, I was always really fascinated by the fact that we all drank the same drinks and bought the same brand of cheese and wore the same shoes. And um, I knew very much that when I went to university, it was what I wanted to study. Um, I wanted to do international business, actually, because my dad didn't let me take a gap year. So I wanted to travel as well. That was really important to me. But at school, I couldn't learn it. So I actually did terrible in my A-levels because I just didn't find my thing. It was only when I got to university, I was like, yeah, I do like this. I enjoy it. Why did your dad, incidentally, why did he not let you have a gap year? Was that to do with family finances or was it just his strong belief that you should get on with it? It was, yeah, I mean, proper, solid, grafting, northern working class family values of you're not having a gap year. That's a luxury. You'll never come back. Get on and graft, get a job start earning a living, basically. So as a kid, then you must have had that if that was something that was really strong as a, as a family kind of foundation, the work ethic was something that was almost coming into you by osmosis, was it as a child? Oh, for sure. I mean, I was really brought up with you look after the pennies and the pounds will look after themselves. You know, I can still hear my mum saying that. I mean, I saw my mum last week and I took her for a meal in London and she was so horrified because she thought I'd over-ordered. And I was like, no, 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 we'll eat it. We'll eat it, it's fine. You know, that, <laughs> that, that mentality that you can't let that go to waste, our Sarah. And I was like, it's just one really small taco that was being left, but we had to eat it. You know, she would have been mortified about the fact that I'd over-ordered and then there might be waste. And I can even, she's even saying that to me last week. So it was really instilled in me as a really young age. It's like, I still cook that way. I, I cook a lot. Mm. And like my mum always had leftover days where she would either cook things that were 
had actually already gone off in the fridge. I'm the same. Just because the date says it's gone off, mm. I still smell it, taste it, and then yeah. I'll still cook from it. And I hate wastage. And that was instilled every single day of my life. So there was a, a frugalness and uh, not wanting to waste things. But what about anybody else in the family that had a real sense of business acumen and understood how businesses worked? Yeah, I not so much. My mum was a maths teacher and a great mum. You know, she always picked us up from school at four o'clock and was always there. And my dad, whilst being in business, it was very different. You know, he had a job and he worked in supply chain management at Wedgwood. Um, It was very, very, very good at what he did, but sees business completely differently than the way I did. Uh, Very much not a risk taker. So I don't know where that came from. I mean, I get asked that a lot in terms of the, the sort of drive and that need to, I don't know, whether it's be successful by my definition of the word success mm-hmm. in what it is that I'm doing. But I, I just think it's something you're born with. And it was clearly ignited then when you got to university and you found the course and you found the subject that really was all about, you know, this, this is it. This is the thing I want. What an exciting feeling that must have been. Yeah, it was. And and you know what? I didn't feel the need to have my own business at all. I was never driven by, oh, I've got to be an entrepreneur. I think I'm whatever it is that I do, I want to do well. Like otherwise, frankly, what's the point? You know, you only get that minute once. So why not go all in and, and enjoy it? Whether I'm having a great time, I'm out for the night or I'm working hard or with my friends, whatever it is I want to do, I want to do it really, really well. And I think with business, I was just so fascinated by the subject that I wanted to I wanted to learn. Mm-hmm. And actually in my twenties, I had great jobs and was really happy. I didn't I didn't think, oh, I'm gonna go off and, and do this on my own. I was really happy traveling, learning, being surrounded by brilliant people, learning from them. And I would have carried on doing the same thing had it have fitted my life. And so the restaurant business, which you became kind of well known for being successful in, well, that wasn't the first industry or the first area that you, you worked in then, was it? Or, or had, you, had you always kind of gone in that direction? That was kind of luck, really. I'd always had a Saturday job since I was 11 um, and it had always been in hospitality. So it was an industry I knew and I loved. It wasn't, I didn't think, and as I think actually so few people do even today, think that there's a career in it, you know, there's mm. there's a future in it. And then actually I'm same age as you. So back in my day when I left university, it was just cool to go and work in the city. Yeah, Everyone yeah. wants to go work in the city. It's like, <laughs> you wanted to meet a city boy and work in the city. You know, that was like what everybody talked about. It's not so much now. Everybody wants to be an entrepreneur. I'm cool, finally. But um, then I just couldn't get a job in the city. I mean, nobody was, um, I hadn't done well in my A-levels. And even though I did really well in my degree, I, I, it was really difficult to get into. I'm not mathematical enough to be able to do it. Mm-hmm. And then I ha- actually had a... I was doing a work placement on the Paris Stock Exchange as a runner. I don't know if you remember the old open outcry floors where people wore those multicolored yeah, jackets. Yeah, yeah, and yeah, used to, like, I used to be the runner that take the ticket. <laughs> yeah, exactly. There you go. Well, there was two left over, one in Paris and one in Chicago. And I managed to get a job as a runner. Um, I applied to every single business that was on that floor. I was determined to wear one of those jackets one day in my life. It's brilliant. And I was working there at the time as doing a work placement. And I had a part-time job in a great business, actually, that they've now got quite a few of them, but this was their first called the Frog and Roast Beef in Paris. And I was just working on a Sunday afternoon 
And I was good behind the bar. It was like busy when all the rugby was on, loads of people pulling pints. It was great. And the owners of that, who were two lads from who had done an MBA at INSEAD, they just started it. But the people who'd project managed were also project managing the Planet Hollywood opening on the Champs-Élysées. And they were having an absolute nightmare with the Americans because the Americans had kind of come over and they couldn't understand these French workers that were stopping for lunch. <laughs> you know, that we're only doing a 35-hour week, really. So they just could not cope with the sort of European culture, especially the French. And they asked the owners of the Frog and Roast Beef if they would help them out. And they said to this day, I'm so grateful, but they said, no, but there's this, we're really busy and we're going to open our second site, but there's this girl that works on a Sunday afternoon. You should speak to her. And then oh, wow. that was it. I then because I kind of got into sort of the head office side of the business side of restaurants, I was like, oh, this is it. I'm done. I love this. Had you always been somebody that loved eating out and loved the, you know, the whole kind of process of going out for dinner and being in a restaurant? Oh, completely. Was I mean, yeah. I couldn't really afford it then, to be honest. And my family never really ate out, but I just love food, mm-hmm. really love food. I'm very social. So I love people. So it's perfect industry for me. And I have to say now, I've been in it for so many years, I just don't think there's a better industry. I, I mean, the people are amazing. Well, we always say when we, when we go out, we, we love eating out. And we always say, if you've had a seven out of 10 meal, but your service has been 10 out of 10, you can forgive a few things. Completely. If your service is two out of 10 and the food's 10 out of 10, all you remember is somebody being rude to you. Or, totally. You know, and it's it's so interesting, actually, that the, the, what's created, the vibe that's created, you know, and that, but that's hard to do when you're looking at chains of restaurants, which you've become involved with. So how do you, how do you manage that? How do you manage people? Yeah, so it's. Um, I was really lucky in my twenties that I w- worked at after Planet Hollywood. I went to Pizza Express, and to be honest, I mean, almost today, they're probably their financial structuring is not the best. But as a business, it's it's still a benchmark in the mm-hmm. industry. And I was very, very lucky that I got to share an office before I left, got to share an office for about eighteen months with the chief executive and the chair All of right. Pizza Express in the time literally changed everything for me is and then I I was like a sponge I must have driven them mad actually I'm sure they don't see that period of time quite as roasting to spectacles (laughs) like I do I'm like oh it was a glorious time they probably think thank god she went actually the life I was living at the time I was in my late 20s and I really wanted to have loads of kids and I was traveling all over. I was like, I can't keep doing this, Sarah. You, you, this is not going to work. You'll burn out. Yeah. It's just I can't. This path is not the path to be on. But I love the industry, and it was it was sharing an office with them and understanding exactly what you said. Like, how do you do it? How do you mm-hmm. have the right people in the right places and understanding when to hire the teams on a mm-hmm. rollout schedule? I thought, yeah, you know what? I've got this. I'm going to do this myself. And you mentioned there that you knew you wanted to have lots of children, but you're you're leading such a busy life in a in a and, and business is still you know and then I imagine much more male dominated in terms of people very, in positions very, of power. Yes. So uh, how were you confident? Or how did you know that you were going to be able to balance the two? I tell you how it was. In all honesty, I have always prioritised my life. Always in every single decision. I've ever made every career change, let's call it that, that I've made, it's 
been because I've been prioritizing my life. So I don't believe in a career path at all. I think a career path is a path that will go very wrong. I really believe in a life path. And I think you have your life path. And of course, you have to be fluid on that. Of course, it's going to move as you get older and and you you're in different stages of your life but your career absolutely has to fall into line 100% for me i it's it's never ever ever the other way around and that's how i believed i could do it because i knew i'd be non-compromising of the things that really mattered to me so mm. i wanted to be a mom i therefore had to set my life up to allow me to be a mom and that I controlled my diary and that I was I didn't have to be Geneva on a Monday, Moscow on a Tuesday, um, somewhere else on a Thursday. I To every possibility that I could have, I would be in charge of that. And that was a really crucial decision. So I made that decision before I'd even met Michael, before I'd even got, you know, before I started to have children. And because I made that decision before, by the time the kids came, I was set up basically. Mm-hmm. And I also knew I had to make a bit of cash. That was really important. So it was important was, to you to have a kind of buffer, was it, before you started yes, to have a family? Yes. Well, because ultimately, really, all money does is give you, if you have that mindset, it's give you freedom, right? That's, that's my drive mm. is to be free. And I knew that if I set myself up, that I was in charge, made a bit of cash, I would actually, by the time I got to be a mum, I'd have the freedom to make the decisions and the career just got to fall into line. So had you started then to invest in other things apart from the industry you were working in? Not until after I started to have kids. So again, that was very much a reaction to my life. So I'd had number two, I had them really quickly, like four in four years. So I'd had Monty, who was number two. And with Minnie, it was so easy. She just came in a papoose and I just wandered around and carried on with my life, really running the the chain of restaurants. And then when I had Monty, (laughs) all of a sudden I'd got this toddler at home and I'd got the newborn. So again, the newborn, I fed him for six months, all of them. So again, he comes in a papoose, off we go on the train to London, whatever. But Minnie was then left at home and I couldn't, I just, I was like, I can't do this. She's only Mm. 14 months. So that made me make, the shift again where I said, okay, I've, I've made the leap to be on my own, but actually I was going to have to do things differently again because I wasn't going to be able to run this business. I had 1,500 staff. I couldn't do it and have lots of children. So I then decided to sell and that's when I started to invest. When you started though to really seriously think about it after you'd had your second baby and you started to look at where you were going to invest, what what was your priority at that point? Were you going to invest in things you knew about? Or were you were you going to invest in things that you had you know had a kind of what was your risk like? Where were you? What where was your head in terms of the of the kind of strategy you had for your investments? So when I started investing, very low risk. It was things that not only did I know and really understand, and I still only invest in things that I know and really understand. It had to be somewhere that something that I felt I could move the needle, like I could actually really make a difference to these businesses. And that's still slightly less so because I, Michael and I both invest. And sometimes it can be something that he really, really understands and therefore we will invest. And he then has to run that. Um, But anything that I lead on, it's something that I really understand 
I'm always pretty active investor, so I'd rather take a more significant chunk or stake and then be re- part of the business. And that, of course, lends itself very nicely to being a dragon, doesn't it? Um, yes. And that is where you would have become much more well-known through that experience, I'm sure. I'm sure you're well-known in business, but suddenly you're in people's living rooms when you join a show like Dragon's Den. Tell me a little bit about the thought process of doing that and how much did you think about how that would change you and your family's life? Yeah, so um, it's a really good question, actually. And you, you're right, it was huge decision. It's not something I've, I strive for, you know, I still want to be able to go shopping in Aldi with my kids and shout at them without everybody looking at me going, oh, look, that's, so, that's Sarah William off the telly. Shouting at her kids. Yeah, yeah, exactly, exactly. So I'd done three series of a show called The Restaurant with Raymond Blanc, which is a bit like The Apprentice. So I'd had a little bit of a taste mm. of, of TV then and loved the process of TV, not so great at the process of being, of not being able to, you know, stand in Aldi and shout at your kids. But that wasn't such a huge show. I used to have like a regular on Sky and do lots of little things. Went Mm. onto ITV this morning quite a bit. Mm -hmm. Um, It's like, it's not actually adding to my life. I'm not, Mm -hmm. I'm not going to do it anymore. I'm going to focus on my businesses, focus on being a mom. My kids were really young at the time, focus on being a mom. And we also had this plan where we wanted to go traveling. And this was January it took me till the middle of February to pretty much get rid of everything to do with media into my life. And it was the last phone call I made actually was to Eamon Holmes. And I called him to say, just so you know, thank you so much for the opportunity. I've loved it, but I'm not going to do the Sky regular anymore. Put the phone down, phone Michael. And I said, right, I've done it. That was the last one. No more media. And I kid you not, that afternoon, I got an email in my inbox asking me if I'd come and screen test for Dragon's Den. <laughs> and I was like, what? The, the universe was going, oh, thank right. goodness. Thank goodness she's cleared some space for us. That's Here exactly we what happened. I was like, that cannot be right. I've just made this decision. What am I going to do? Um, and I hardly read. I thought, well, they screen test like 90 women. They're never going to pick me. Wow. I'll just go along. I'll meet Deborah Meader. Maybe we'll become really good friends. It'll be a good laugh. <laughs> That'll be it. So I went on the Monday, the following Monday, and did the screen test. And then on the Wednesday, I got a text message to say, uh, just to let you know you're down to the last three. I was oh, like, no. I was like, oh, my God. I said, you know that thing I did on Monday? Because we hadn't really taken it that seriously. Yeah. I was like, we actually need to have a proper conversation about this because this might happen. And it was really last minute because somebody, had, it was supposed to be Tamara Mellon, you know, who did yes, Jimmy Choo. Jimmy Choo, yeah. And that had all fallen through for whatever reason. So it's quite last minute. The filming was starting like a month later or something. So anyway, on the Friday, I get a phone call. Congratulations. I was like needed to breathe into a bag, you know, <laughs> what? That can't be right. Did you know what the commitment was at that point? Did had they? So, yes, I knew the time commitment. And of course, the financial commitment is whatever it is that you, mm, you know, that, you decide, that you decide to invest. And I was like, the problem with doing, as you know, is the problem with doing anything in TV is you really need to do it twice (laughs) because the first time you're a bit like rabbit in headlights. Nobody knows who you are. You don't really get it. The second time you really enjoy the process. You sit comfortably in your seat. You love it. So I was like, if I commit, I'm actually really committing to two series. Mm -hmm. And that was... That was the challenge because it was the second year of filming that we had planned 
to take the kids out of school for a year and go traveling around the world. So we had to, when Michael and I said, okay, let's do it. It's an amazing opportunity. I mean, 120 businesses literally get brought to you and it was fantastic. And I loved it. Every minute of it, loved it. But it did mean us moving our round the world trip for another year, which was fine, completely fine. So you finally get on your year out, your yes. gap year, the gap year your dad said you couldn't have. Yes, you, you, I know, you see, you never, honestly. What, what goes around comes around. Exactly. How did you explain, I mean, your kids were of an age, I guess, where they're going to come along for the ride, whatever, they weren't teenagers. Yeah, totally. They were between yeah. five and 10. And in fact, we ended up not coming back and we ended up going for three years in the end. It's so three years. Yeah, it was great. How were um, they educated in that time then? So... Pretty much nothing on the first year um, <laughs> round. So honestly, I mean, it's so bad. But we, so we took, we had twenty three kilos of luggage each because we had we had six round the world economy tickets. That's all we got for the year. So if you bought something, it was because you had to replace something that fell apart. You know, we did that was all we had. So we had, oh God, I think it's about twelve kilos in total of school books. Hilarious. I mean, absolutely. What we were thinking, we were completely (laughs) delusional. So about six weeks in, I remember sitting down at a table trying to go through these like maths books and English books. I just thought, I can't have this relationship with my kids. Like, I do not want to do this. It's going to ruin my year. I just said to Michael, I don't care. They're too young. Let us educate them as we go around the world on life, on economics, on nature, on the environment, on culture, on politics. Let's just educate them Mm -hmm. and deal with the aftermath later, should we need to. You know, and actually, I remember having a very sensible conversation with the kids towards the end of the year where we said, if you need to go back a year, are you prepared to do that? This is the decision that we're making here. Uh, And all of them were like, all in. That we really? want to have a great year. And if we have to go back a year, we don't care. It doesn't matter. So when you get to year two, what happens then? Then they went to a school. So right. we were towards the end of the first year. We were properly traveling at that point. This with our little 23 kilos of luggage. And I think it was April and our return ticket was beginning of August. And I just said to Michael, you know, it took us two years to make ourselves redundant from our life. Why on earth are we rushing back mm-hmm. when we don't have to? I can. I'm, I was still flying back and forth. So was he. And even though it wasn't Zoom or Microsoft Teams, we could still have board meetings on mm-hmm. video. It was. It was working. So I said, you know, we've never done a ski season. None of us could ski. Why don't we go closer to home? So we're in Australia at the time. Why don't we go closer to home, but not not quite home? And then we sat, Googled ski in, ski out schools, Europe, hilariously. <laughs> and this village came up in Switzerland and we were like, right, let's go. Wow. And that's what we did. We went to went to this village in the middle of the mountains and ended up staying there for two years. And they had, they went to proper school there. While you're away, it's like, you know, you think about when you're on holiday and you don't want to come home. How quickly do you start to kind of live your life on those kinds of trips? And it's not like you're on holiday. Do you know what I mean? Because you have to do real things like discipline your kids, don't you? And and make sure they go to bed. Like when you're on holiday, you're like, whatever, eat chocolate in bed. But when 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 that's your life for three years, how quickly do you start kind of... Pretty quickly. I mean, we spent, yeah, we spent the first month in... 
Canada. And that very much felt like a holiday. Mm -hmm. But we, so we had a really strict budget every day, which the kids ran. Wow, um, what a lesson. Brilliant, it was brilliant. And it, it really made them understand the value of money actually the relative value I should say of money which I mm. think is the only value of money it's mm. all about context so for example if we decided to go out to eat in an evening that would mean we would have to pay less for our accommodation that night or we if we'd done a really big trip especially in Canada because the petrol was more expensive mm -hmm. I'll never forget them relearning that as we cross the border <laughs> why is it so much more expensive um and they so if we spent like 80 dollars on filling up the tank of petrol in canada then you couldn't go out for the meal that night and you'd go to a supermarket and buy a you know roast chicken and, and they a baguette were in charge of that they were in charge of that so if they wanted to go to universal studios for example when we got to, down to la well there's a that has an impact, right? You can't afford that out of one day's budget. So we agreed that we would effectively amortize it over seven days and we would take off the amount of the tickets over that seven day period. But what it meant was it was packed lunches every day. You know, and it was it was we we went to the supermarket, bought the food, and they were like, We want to go to Universal Studios. What a brilliant Fine. lesson. But yeah. and that happened a lot of the time they would like be like, No, in that case, let's not do this I mean we stayed in some awful accommodation and I remember them when we got to San Diego they were like I don't care what it costs we will eat like banana in a baguette every day we want to stay somewhere really nice the kids said that the kids said that <laughs> with really soft towels I was like okay so it's brilliant so now your kids are back in kind of mainstream education and kind of living, uh, I guess, a more normal life. Do you, are you quite good on setting rules regarding money, pocket money, you know, doing chores? Yeah. So I, I mean, I think, but I think it's much more because of the way that I was brought up really that I'm, I'm really strict on it. And, you know, I had a job when I was their age. So I'm always saying to them, go out and get a job. Mm -hmm. uh, we've just started. So Minnie is nearly 16 and Monty's 14. And they now get some money to get their bus, to get like a snack after school. And it probably is enough for them to go out for dinner twice a month or something with their friends. But I'd kind of draw the line at that, really. Mm. You know, I said, if you want clothes and you need clothes, obviously I'll buy them. You need a pair of shoes or whatever, I'll, I'll mm. buy them if you need them. Mm. But I'm like, go and get a job. Mm -hmm. Go and earn some money. So actually, in fairness to them, they have all found ways of earning money. Monty has a money doing his, on his... Um, computer games like uh, Roblox and things like that. He actually did really well during lockdown on that. Nelly has started a gorgeous little ring business where she makes ceramic animal rings. And she's, you know, she gets one or two orders off Etsy every week. It's great, really. It's brilliant that she's learnt it. And Minnie does a mean trade on Depop. Yeah, my I've got, yes. over to my right, I have a pile of parcels that are going off today. There so, you go. Yeah, she's there been Depopping this weekend. And yes. I sometimes say to her, look, I've, I've got all this stuff here. You can take 50% of whatever you sell because it's just going to, either I'm going to put it in a charity shop or give it to, yeah. you know, to your grandma. I do, so. the, I do exactly the same. Exactly yeah. the same. I'm like, and look, help yourself. This yeah. is the stuff I don't want anymore. If you can sell it, brilliant. And it just gives them a sense of independence as well, doesn't it? Totally. You know, when I see a print 
printing off her labels and packaging things up, I think, well, you know, she's she's getting on and doing stuff. But um, it's great. Th- these lessons obviously uh, came from your childhood in many ways and you realize how they've helped create you uh, you know to be the person that you are and obviously you and your husband have very similar values Uh, you said earlier on that in your 20s you know not so many investments maybe a little pension have you become uh as you've got older a little bit safer in some of the investments that you've done so as well as businesses have you got things like pensions and ISAs that are just ticking over so not really um and the reason is is because I'm I've found something that I'm really good at and I really like investing and I am good at it. And things like the EIS scheme make it really interesting to be able, you know, financially, tax-wise, really interesting Mm. to be able to invest in small perceived much higher risk investments. Mm -hmm. I would say to anybody, if you don't have that alternative, you know, the pensions are really tax efficient. It's brilliant way of investing. Mm. Just got to find the right people, you know, but sometimes I meet these people and I think, I know I can invest better than you. So (laughs) I'm going to do it. But that's because I have found my niche. You know, I don't invest in FTSE 250, which they do and they do very successfully. I invest in small businesses, aim-listed businesses, pub, private businesses, you know, but it's it's what I do and I love and I know how to, I know, I know what I'm looking for. So, but I do think, you know, some people, my, my best friend used to make so much money out of property because mm-hmm. he was brilliant at it. I'd be terrible at that. I'm sure, uh, you know, along the way, some decisions haven't gone as well as others. And every successful person in any walk of life, whether you're a sports person or an entrepreneur, will tell you about the mistakes they learnt from. Sure. What, what would you say is the one learning or the, or, the, or the blip, the bump in the road that you learnt a lot from? So we started a business God, a long time ago now called Let's Save Money. Um, and actually it was, you know, yes, it made a little bit of profit. It wasn't a complete and utter disaster, um, but it never got to where it, sh- it should have got to. It never, we never made a success out of it, put it that way mm. at all. Um, and I guess in the grand scheme of businesses, it would be classed as a failure. And do you and know I think, why? And I think a couple of reasons. One was... We went into something that we knew nothing about. That was a real learning. It was a long time Mm -hmm. ago. It was real learning. And then it was a very crowded market and we had not nailed the fundamental marketing business model. You know, for every pound you spend, what am I going to get back? And again, huge learning. And it's something I, I, every business I look at, if I give you a pound, how much am I getting back? Mm. It's such an important question. And again, I didn't have the answer to that early on. And we never really got there. We thought we would, but we never really got the right answer. And so I guess you, the, those learnings have, have then oh, made, yeah, going forward. Huge. You yeah. never forget the failures ever. They <laughs> sit with you. And uh, although I don't give myself 20 lashings anymore, um, I'm, I've definitely learned from them. And with your kids, they had this amazing experience of budgeting for three years, which I just think is is absolutely brilliant. And the closest I can relate to that is when we used to go out for dinner as kids, we had five pounds to spend. We were never allowed to spend more than so we'd have to choose between a starter and a calzone or, you know, if you wanted a Coca-Cola, yeah, my parents would never always, you were allowed to fight. They'd be ordering, you know, kind of smoked salmon to start, then having a steak and we'd have this five pounds (laughs) thing, which when I tell my kids, they go, really? Nana did that to you. Um, But your kids had three years of budgeting, which is absolutely 
absolutely mm. brilliant. Now, what do they think of money? Because you're you're not driven, I don't think, by necessarily you want the business to be a success, but the material side and the comfort is you keep pointing back to freedom and choice rather than saying I need my Lamborghini and my you know house oh, in Saint Tropez. So wh- where do they? kind of see money in terms of their values yeah it's do you know what is a really good question i'd love to actually i'd love for you to ask all four of them that is a really straight question and see what answer we we got if they were asked straight like that what do i think they would say i definitely don't think that they are at all driven by material possessions none of them care about what they wear or the designers or that type of thing at all of course, they have a privileged life. Of course, they do. Um, you know, we live in a really nice house in a really nice place, but we've never been driven by. You know, we don't have a we have no cars are not. I'm not a car yeah. person, or we have very nice holidays. Like that's our thing, but not always luxury. Mm-hmm. They're often even now like a real adventure. It's not. Mm-hmm. It's not about staying somewhere that's really posh. Mm-hmm. It's actually about doing something or living we like to try and live somewhere where we yeah immerse mm-hmm. ourselves in in it when we turn up i definitely think that that one of the things that they will take away from their time their upbringing will be uh to write your own narrative you know hold the pen to your own story sorry about the cliches they're terrible but do you know what you know what i mean like it's 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 be in charge of your Mm -hmm. destiny what's the the um either take a risk or work for somebody that took one you know it's it's that it's it's that mentality so so by the sounds of it then there are four budding entrepreneurs there who are yeah i mean i think Definitely a couple of them will will go down that path for sure. One's very creative, so that'll be interesting because me and Michael aren't particularly creative. So we'll see where she ends up. But I think they are they're very grateful for the freedom that we've had as parents mm-hmm. to be with them um, and the emphasis that we've put on that. And we involve them in all our decisions, rightly or wrongly, and only time will tell if we got this right or not. And I, there's no point asking you about plans because it's clear from what you said at the very beginning that you don't believe in that. It's about life. And I think that's a beautiful way to kind of end because you um, you seem to have made some very good decisions uh, with that as your backdrop. And it's been fascinating, Sarah. Thank you so, so much for sharing so much with us today and uh, best of luck with everything that's going forwards. Oh, thank you so much for having me on. It's been so lovely. I feel like I, I shouldn't leave without asking you loads of questions. It's always <laughs> wrong, isn't it? Thanks for listening. If you have time, please like and follow the II Family Money Show and leave us a review or rating in your podcast app. You can find loads of ideas on how to plan for you and your family's future at ii.co.uk. I'll see you next time. Hold up. 